Now, there's several ways that can be done. Let me give you some helps, some aids. First, some passages just flat out mention Jesus, like this one in Luke 24. That's pretty easy to find Jesus in Luke chapter 24. That's not hard. Second, um, and these are in no particular order, um, Old Testament prophecies can foretell Christ, like we've seen. And others in the Old Testament, and some New Testament prophecies, foretell Jesus' second coming. And those are pretty easy to find Jesus in. So look for prophecies that point us to Jesus. Third, many places in Scripture point to our need for Jesus as a Savior. They point to our need. For instance, many of the sins that are recorded in Scripture are not written for us to emulate. How many times have you heard a a, a critic of the Bible saying, well, in, in the Bible, there's all these people doing all these evil things. Yes, they are. But not for us to emulate them. Not, they're not there for us to say, oh, go and do likewise. Those sins and evils that are recorded in Scripture are written variously to disgust us, to remind us of how weak and how bad we are, how much our world cannot save itself, how much we need a Savior beyond myself. We need God to intervene in history and in my story. So when we read that Samson slept with a prostitute, we're not supposed to champion that or argue that personal sins don't matter in our leaders. No. We're supposed to read that in light of the warning in the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, even the leaders. And we look to King Jesus, who by his spirit helps his people to live by what is right in his own eyes and who will come again to rule with an iron rod. Fourth, many places point us to the good that only God supplies and ultimately most perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, when the psalmist writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. We are pointed to the ultimate great deed of God taking on flesh, living among us, dying on a cross for the sins of the world in the person of the Son. And even when we thank God for the more basic things of our lives, we are encouraged to remember that all things were created through Jesus. And so they exist because of him and for him. And so our thanks are properly directed to Jesus. Fifth, many parts of the Old Testament in particular use what we might call typology, fancy word, um, that just simply means that they are figures that are deliberately used to point us to Jesus. They are foreshadowings of Jesus. And they, are, they were there two ways. They're to prepare the Old Testament saints for what was coming, but they're still there to encourage us and teach us. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, One, as God's chosen king, David was a type, typology, but a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
He wasn't perfect. But the contours of his life, as we have them recorded, are there to point us to Jesus. So we think of the story of David and Goliath. And the, and the point of that story is not, never was, and never should be, that you should be a David and that you can conquer your giants. That kind of sermon has been preached way too much and it's garbage. It's, just, it's garbage. It's not what the scripture says and that's not how we should read scripture. The point of David and Goliath is that the people of God, the Israelites, were trembling with fear. Trembling in fear of a Philistine soldier, an, an enemy of God. That it, an enemy that God had promised he would destroy if the Israelites had remained faithful. And he's out there insulting the God of the Israelites. And here is God's people, cowered in fear, unable to slay the giant. If you want to find yourself in the story of David and Goliath, you ain't David. You're the Israelites. You're weak, and you're afraid, and you need a savior. We need a king, King Jesus, to deliver us from God's enemies who would destroy us. And the greatest enemy is sin with its power of death. Or take a look at the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. That's one that we love to go through. We love to to read through all the different sacrifices and how many hymns of oil and ephahs of flour are needed with each type of sacrifice. It's riveting. They go on and on. But the point is that they teach us the serious nature of sin and the desperate need we have to deal with it. What's more, it reminds us of this huge chasm between us and God, how holy he is and how unholy we are, and that we cannot rightly approach God, but also that these sacrifices are going to be met by something better, that they are merely a type pointing to Christ, who is the better and perfect sacrifice, who not only makes us right with God, but as we've been learning in in Sunday school and, and as it's written in Hebrews 4 allows us to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let me give you a sixth way of finding Jesus. And this is not an exhaustive list. But when you think of the ethical teachings of Scripture, whether they be in the New Testament or the Old Testament, they should point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to emphasize the New Testament here because um, we we might oversimplify that in the Old Testament, much of the ethical teaching reminds us of how much we've fallen short and need to be rescued. But in the New Testament, much of the ethical teaching is rooted in the fact of what Christ has already done, that he has already rescued us. And so then the question becomes, how then shall we live in light of the fact that we've been rescued, that we've been forgiven, that we've been redeemed, that we've been made a new people, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters into the kingdom of Christ our God. And so when we read the list of things that we should do and that we shouldn't do, 
the do's and don'ts, we cannot, we must not read this as some sort of like soulless legalism. Instead, we read them as an outpouring of thanksgiving from lives that have already been declared righteous in the eyes of God, that there's no longer any condemnation for those who place their faith in Christ Jesus because of the work that he did on the cross. So if we take Ephesians 4, for example, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's not merely a list of do's and don'ts. And it's a, it's a scandal that some churches uh, will occasionally preach these as do's and don'ts so that if you don't measure up to this standard, then you are not a good Christian or you are not right with God. That misses the point because those lists need to be read in the context of, of, of what Christ has already done on the cross, how he's already made us right with God through his blood. And so... This isn't merely a list of do's and don'ts. It's a, hey, you're something new. You have been renewed by Christ. You are something different now because Jesus died and mercifully saved you. So live like it. Act like it. The cross is the encouragement. Jesus died for you to live the way you are living right now. Is the way you're living right now the way you want to honor Christ? If not, how are you going to change it? Is this the way you want to show him thanks for what he has done? If not, change it. And so we back up in in some place like Ephesians 4 so that we don't take commands out of context. We have Paul saying, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The cross changes everything. You know, some of you are already thinking about this year. This is the year I'm going to really read my Bible because you're doing New Year's resolutions and things like this. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend a Bible commentary to you. You're like, I don't want to read a commentary. Just read the Bible. You should read your Bible. But if you want a good commentary to explain the Bible to you in a way that is easy enough for a child let me suggest you pick up a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a kid's book. It's a picture book. It's $14.19 on Amazon hardcover. It's $9.99 for the Kindle edition. It's cheap. It's beautiful. And you're going to be ashamed that I'm recommending to you a, a book that is aimed at children who can't read or who are just starting to read. But it's not intimidating. It's not an intimidating book by any stretch. And it's better than most books I've read in that it will teach you how to see Jesus in every passage of Scripture. Read the Bible. 
meditate the, on the Bible, study the Bible, but then for a little encouragement, so your Bible storybooks don't cover every story in the Bible, but you know, if, it's, if, there's, if you're on that passage a day, read it. You'll, you'll find some encouragement in that. And I, I am not kidding. You want a book that will teach you to understand where Jesus is in Scripture. And not an intimidating book. It's got pictures to go along with it. Jesus Storybook Bible. But as we look ahead to 2020, let's be Jesus people. People who find Jesus in the Scriptures. We will be encouraged and counseled by the witness to him from Genesis to Revelation. Would you commit again to reading the scriptures through in 2020? Choose your plan. There are a million of them. There's a plan that we encouraged people to go through last year and, and, and we'll keep it up there for this year as well. And hopefully the, the Gospel Coalition has put together a number of resources for the same plan that we used as Gateway in 2019, including resources for small groups to use. So I'll I'll get some links to those on our website. And so that might be a good way to go. But let's read the Bible. Let's read it well, and let's read it with an eye to finding Jesus, because Jesus can be found, and he still speaks to us in his word. Second and lastly... Uh, the faithful find Jesus in the sacrament. The, the second thing the disciples point to is Jesus breaking bread. And the scene, as we saw, is reminiscent of the Lord's Supper, at which Jesus instituted the rite that makes a church a church. I don't want to belabor this. I've preached on this uh, elsewhere. You can find it in our, our sermon archives. And, and so I don't want to go on too long, because um, I'm already noticing I've got more notes than usual. But, but suffice it to say that Jesus, at the Last Supper, commanded that we repeat the act. The Bible describes our sharing in one loaf as symbolic of us all being part of the one body of Christ. In a way, uh, baptism marks our entrance into the people of God, which is the church, and the Lord's Supper marks our continued fellowship in the church rightly understood, then the Lord's Supper is something of a pledge, a a pledge that we are one, that we are together, that we are the church. And that is, by the way, when you look at 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about this, uh, it's in the context of the local church, not even the universal church. Jesus says to do this act in remembrance of him. So in Luke 22, 19, we have And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in Luke 24, 30, we have, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Clearly, Luke is intimating that this is something of a Lord's Supper. And in sharing the supper, they find Jesus. Their eyes are open to his identity. Now, partly for truth, but also partly just for the sake of alliteration, I said that the faithful find Jesus in the sacrament, because S and Scripture is S. But that might have thrown you off or caused some consternation because I used the word sacrament. We just read a part of our confession of faith, and we used the word consistently ordinance. Well, so what is a, a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a means of grace. More, more specifically, it's actually uh, a, an outward sign of an inward reality. 
outward sign of an inward reality. Um, but it's often been taken to be an inward reality of grace. And often Protestants reject this term because it sounds Catholic. And after all, the Roman Catholics make a big deal about the sacraments. In fact, and I quote from their catechism here, quote, for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation, end quote. The Roman church believes that the sacraments convey grace necessary for salvation and that these sacraments must be performed in order to obtain this grace. And what's more, the church teaches that only they have the ability to administer these sacraments. And so when one is outside the bounds of Rome, one is outside the saving power of the sacraments. That is a critical and unbiblical error. Since they believe that the sacraments are channels of God's saving grace, they can acknowledge with Protestants that we are saved by grace alone, although they maybe differ on the nature and contours of that grace. But they cannot acknowledge that salvation is, as the scriptures state, by faith alone. For they see that it is necessary to perform good works in the sacraments. Moreover, like I said, the scope of the grace they profess is different than the Protestant teaching. So this is emphatically not what I mean by the term sacrament, just to alleviate any stress in your heart right now. Rome is wrong. But let me suggest that the sacraments are a means of grace. They are not a means of saving grace. But there are other graces. Uh, The rain falls on the crops of the righteous and the wicked. That's a grace. It's an undeserved, unmerited goodness from God. The protection of our police and fire and EMS servants is a grace. The existence of God's created handiwork proclaiming his existence to us is a grace. There are many types of grace in this world. But in sacraments, we are speaking of means of grace which are especially bestowed by Christ upon his church for our continued celebration. Here's how the London Baptist Confession of 1689 puts it. I rarely quote things like this, but this morning I've got a couple quotes from stuff like this. Um, The London Baptist Confession of 1689, which was kind of the the greatest uh, Baptist confession of the Reformation, and they put it this way with regards to the benefits or graces that we receive through the Lord's Supper. They write, The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him for confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So the, the Lord's Supper is sort of a spiritual food. It should confirm or strengthen our faith, help us to grow in Christ, help us to fulfill our duties to Christ, and bond us to one another. Those certainly seem like graces to me, undeserved, unmerited goodnesses from God. They aren't the ultimate grace of Christ's blood covering my sins that by my salvation, 
They are beautiful and wonderful things. But more than this, in the Lord's Supper, there's a sense in which we are uniquely united with Christ. Since the Reformation, there have been a a, a split among Protestants, uh, a minor split. This doesn't cause any damages to fellowship. Um, As to whether or not the Lord's Supper is merely symbolic or whether also it brings us into the actual or real presence of Jesus Christ. And that debate was fostered a bit because the Roman church devised this a doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the idea that when the priest says the right formula, the bread and the wine transform into the actual body and blood of Jesus. If I can again quote from the London Baptist Confession, because it's so good on this point, they, they write, that doctrine which ma- maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest, or by any other way, is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the ordinances, and has been, and is, the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. I wish we lived in a world where we could say yea more, like... But it's kind of just, you know, dagger in the sand right there. Um, I think as a result, though, many many Christians, because of the the superstitions and gross idolatries of Rome, many Christians have swung the pendulum too far the other way and said, well, Jesus isn't present in the Lord's Supper in a unique way at all. It's It's just a remembrance. It's just a memorial. It's just symbolic. But that's not the only position, although it's probably the most popular position in 21st century America. But in fact, it's probably the minority position historically. And, and although the exact way Christians have understood this differ, uh, again, the London Confession does a wonderful job of summarizing how many, Christ, many Christians have understood the presence of Christ uh, in the Lord's Supper. They put it this way, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith really and indeed yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being spiritually present to the faith of believers in the ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward sentence. They cite 1 Corinthians 10.16 in defense of that position uh, where Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless is... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? For, the, for Paul, the cup was really a participation in the blood of Christ. And the bread was really a participation in the blood of Christ. Maybe in the 21st century, we're just uncomfortable with mystery. Maybe we want a rational, naturalistic faith for a rational, naturalistic world. You know, the Bible won't allow that, will it? Not if we believe in angels announcing a resurrected Messiah. Now, this is not a test of faith at Gateway. It's not a part of our church's doctrinal statement. We just read it. Uh, We allow for freedom of conscience on this matter. But let me impress upon you my case that in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is really present. Not physically, but spiritually. Nevertheless, 
not any less really. And so it is that the faithful find Jesus in the sacrament. How else do we understand the connection between repeating of the Lord's Supper and Jesus' disciples finally recognizing him by faith? Because of this, because it offers us us true grace, and because it lets us find our true Lord, we ought to take the sacrament with seriousness. As members of this church, um, those who are members here, we pledge, as Scripture teaches us, to not forsake our assembly to, uh, our, not forsake our assembly to one another, or in a word, to be together on the Lord's day, unless God-honoring circumstances prevent it. But let me suggest that if the faithful find Jesus in the sacrament, then even beyond that, we should take extra care, special care, to be present when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This is one reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular schedule. And I know Christians debate how often it should be done. But I would argue that because of the seriousness and the importance of it, it should be done on a predictable schedule whatever that is, whether that's some churches do it weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever, people should know when it takes place because of the importance of it. And we do it regularly and planned. It's also why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we will next week, we take care to teach people and warn people of the significance of the Supper so that they can truly enjoy its benefits, but also so that they do not cause spiritual harm to themselves. How do we prepare for the supper? Well, Paul says that one of the most important ways that we prepare for the supper is by recognizing the body. Recognizing the body. And that means that our Lord's Supper is not an individualistic act because the body there is the church. It is the gathered Christians together. And the problem that the Corinthians were having was that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that was divisive, hurtful and individualistic, serving, each, serving their own needs and not being concerned about the other's needs. And so one of the most important ways that we prepare for the Lord's Supper is to reflect on how Christ has bought, this and, bought and brought this diverse mess of people together into himself in the church. And to reflect on the wonderful redeeming work that he has done on the cross, the oneness of all believers, despite our skin tones and languages, our habits, our social standing, our economic standing, whether we are low or high in the eyes of the world, we have been bought and brought to this one body of Jesus Christ by his blood. So let me encourage you that the faithful will find Jesus in the scriptures and in the sacraments. Even for us who are not lucky enough to have lived and walked among the disciples, nevertheless, he is real and present to us by faith in his word and in his supper. And I would encourage you, plead with you, if you have not come to surrender to Jesus as king, He is willing and able to buy you into his people and so give you the forgiveness for your sins that join you to that same body. Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful that you have bought us by your blood, brought us by your grace into this thing that you call your body, your church. And we love that we stand in a line of saints who have gone before us for thousands of years looking back to the cross of Jesus or looking ahead to his offering. United in faith. That we will be one in eternity with each other and with you. And we are thankful that you have not left us weak and wavering sinners without a witness. But even as you reminded Thomas that though he was blessed because he had seen and believed, even more blessed are those who believe without seeing. So you have revealed yourself to us no less really by faith. In your scriptures and in your supper. And we pray, Father, that we would be people of your word in 2020. We pray that we would honor the supper and reflect on how it binds us to Christ. That you would nourish our souls, reveal to us our Savior, that our love for him might deepen. It's in his name we pray. Amen.